0: No, we started a, a series of messages a couple of weeks back before one weekend. We're kind of come back around to that and kind of revisit that. It's this whole concept of am I a fan, am I a follower, and where, what, what is the line that distinguishes between the two? Because I want to say in our culture there's a very gray line between the two. It's not real clear. You could look at some people, in fact, the guy we're going to look at today, you'd look at him and you would see a common, I mean, you'd absolutely believe this guy is a follower all the way until you get into the depths of his story. And then we're going to see something a little bit different. But again, just to review, when we're talking about a fan, we're talking about somebody who loves the idea of Jesus who loves the idea of his morals, the idea of his teaching, the idea of his miracles, who really identifies with that whole idea. If he was taking a survey, she was to take a survey, am I Christian, am I Muslim, they would definitely say they're Christian. They love the idea of Christianity, they love the idea of Christ. A follower is actually in love with Christ. And again, we're going to hopefully help understand and distinguish between the two to help us all make sure we can self-identify. This is a series where I'm not pointing my finger at anyone saying, you are a fan and you are a follower. This is a self-diagnosis process. This is a self-checking of the heart, a probing of yourself. As you go through this series with me right up to Easter time, and again, just real quickly reviewing, I, I put two photos on the screen just to kind of capture this. A football player and a football fan. And the player obviously representing uh, the Green Bay Packers here, Clay Matthews, outstanding football player, all in intensity, pulsates in the game when he's in the game. But also you get the cheesehead, who is fully in the game as well. Paints his face, wears funny things on his head, yells and screams, stands in the cold, buys season tickets, spends lots of money. Totally, you can look at both of them and say they are true green and yellow fans of the game and in the game. But are they both in the game? Are they both fans? They could both be a fan, but not both people are in the game. When you got, you chalk up the similarities, but then you have to look at the differences. When, when one's in the game and they're finished with the game, they go one place and another, another, the, the player goes one place and the fan goes a different place. The fan, the, excuse me, the, the, the player will go to a bucket of ice and soak his tired, worn out body. Because they have been beaten and bruised and battered in the midst of the competition on the gridiron. The fan just makes his way to the local pub and finds another beer and another place to to continue to critique the game and how they could have done it better had they been in the game. There's a difference between the two after the game. And you know that and I know that. Which one of you? Are you a fan or are you a follower? Are you in the game or are you watching the game from the sidelines, critiquing those that are in the game? A fan is an enthusiastic of is what it says, or an admirer is what it says in Webster's Dictionary. We're using that as our definition. An enthusiastic admirer. Total cheesehead guy, he's an admirer. He's enthusiastic, he's screaming as much as Clay Matthews is screaming. So you look at that and you go, okay, that, that person is loyal to his football team, Much like many of our people in this room today and beyond are loyal to Jesus. And they say they're a Jesus follower and they'll hold up a Jesus banner. A follower, though, is different. And that's what Jesus calls us to. Again and again and again Scripture. Twenty-something times a follower is someone who does what other people say to do. Again, Webster's Dictionary, but that someone does what other people, let's just insert Jesus in there, does what Jesus says to do. Now, in our culture of independence and freedom, self-expression, we don't like to be told what to do. We like to tell other people what to do. We like to make our own game plan, our own five-year plan. We like to do that ourselves. We don't want anybody crowding us too closely, telling us how we should live our life. But yet what Jesus calls us to is a life of following following his lead, following his example, following his path, following his mentality, following his worldview, following his attitude, following, following, following as he instructs us. A lot of people like Jesus for the warmth of the embrace, for the security of eternity, for the happier conscience. They don't like words like submission and surrender and sacrifice. They don't like words like servanthood. Those are the words of a follower. We'd like to be our own. Kyle Eidelman, again, the book that kind of prompted this series in my own heart to examine my own heart. Mike, what are you, a fan or a follower? But in Kyle Eidelman's book, Not a Fan, he makes this statement. Put it up on the screen. Fans come to Jesus thinking tune up, but Jesus is thinking overhaul. Fans think a little makeup is fine. Jesus is thinking makeover. Fans think a little decorating is required. Jesus wants the complete remodel. Fans want Jesus to inspire them. But Jesus wants to interfere with their life. Just camp on that last one if you can't remember them all. How has Jesus interfered with your life? Do you allow Jesus to interfere with your life? Get in your business. Allow yourself to be shaped by Him. We're going to read a verse in a moment that really when Jesus gets down, He defines what this means. And we've given a phrase each week, first week and now this week, and we'll give one each week that kind of helps us, again, distinguish am I a fan or am I a follower? What am I? The first week I said this, a fan, you might be a fan, you could be a fan, if you know about Jesus but you don't know Jesus. You could pass the catechism class. You could be baptized. You could go to Sunday school. You could, you could win Bible drills or something like that. You've got the books of the Bible. You've got the key stories of David and Goliath and Joan in the well and all that kind of stuff. You've got some of that down, and you know about Jesus and the miracles, and you know about Him, and you can even tell people. You go on a mission trip and tell from creation to Christ. You know about Him, but do you know Him? I can't retell that message. That was a few weeks ago. You can go back and listen to that if you missed it. But do you know him or do you know about him? The second one this week, what I want to talk about is you could be a fan if you love blank more than you love Jesus. Just fill in that blank with anything. Anything you want it to be, anything that you desire, anything that you think about, anything that you, you ponder, anything that you will fight and defend for, anything that you will spend more money on than, than Jesus, thinking about that, then we're talking about it could be what the Bible calls an idol in your life. Could be food, could be money, could be fame, could be pleasures, could be sex, could be fantasy, could be career, could be video games, could be words with friends, I don't know could be any number of things that slip into our life that consume our minds, our thoughts, our attitudes. We begin to shape our life around it. Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to really call yourself a lover of me, not just a lover of the idea of me, there's something that I'm going to get in your business and I'm going to begin to shape your life shape your marriage shape your attitude shape your consciousness shape 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 you again what was the last phrase that i mentioned there uh, from idelman that uh, that he said there interfere with your life is jesus going to interfere with your life john chapter 14 verse 15 if you love me if you love me you will obey my commands This is an objective qualifying statement. Objective because he tells us there's a standard out there. My commands, my precepts, my principles, my truth for my word. There's an objective standard that's out there. If you obey this, it qualifies you to say that you love me. You love me if you're obeying this, if this is shaping you, interfering with your life. It's a part of who you are. That's that objective qualifier. Are you a fan or are you a follower? Let's talk about a young man, a young businessman, a young successful man. Find your Bibles, the book of Mark, chapter 10. I told you we're going to be looking at all the gospel accounts of different people all the way up to to Easter, looking at different examples of people and groups of people that model what a follower is. Hopefully we'll take it and ratchet it up and make sure we're not in that camp but we are a true follower of Jesus. We don't want to be a fan, excuse me, of Jesus. This young professional, we don't know much about him. In fact, if you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what they call the synoptic Gospels, and you look at all three of those Gospels, you get a full story of this one account of this one man who comes to Jesus, falls on his knees, and cries out to Jesus wanting to know how he can be sure he has eternal life. Pretty important question. Maybe one you've even battled with yourself. How do I connect with God? How do I live forever? How do I do this? And he falls at Jesus' feet. What do we know about him? Well, from Matthew chapter 19, we know that he's a young man. From, from Luke chapter 18, we know that he's a certain ruler. So you combine that together with what we have here in Mark, and you have the story of a certain young, rich ruler, attorney, business leader, councilman. We don't know, but he is a person of influence. He would be voted. If he's young, he would be voted. I'm counting young anything in the low 40s, okay? So if you feel old at 30, then just get over it. Uh, be 46 and you can talk about being old. Um, and some of y'all are saying, "Yeah, right." Uh, but anyway, the, the, uh, he would have been voted among the forty up and coming, uh, among the forties, the under forties, uh, forty group. He would he would have been in the, uh, an Optimist Club or a Rotary Club. He would have been the 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 person that you would have wanted on the council, city council, or the school board, because he was. Listen, he was a moral, upstanding, good, religious, spiritual man. He loved his mom and dad. He loved his wife. You would look at this man and you would say, this man, listen, is a follower of Jesus. You pull back the layers and you do a real diagnosis. We might see something a little different in a moment, but let's look at him uh, as he sells himself or as he presents himself. Verse 17, it says, and he was setting out on a journey and a man, Jesus was setting out on a journey and a man ran up to him, knelt before him. That's not common. Alright, in a Jewish culture, pride's very high. You don't get down below somebody. This man obviously respects Jesus to the hilt. Knelt down before him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now we're going to come back to the word good. In fact, Jesus highlights it next. We'll come back and break that down. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? There is no one good except God alone. You know the commands? Do not murder, the sixth commandment. Do not commit adultery, the seventh commandment. Do not steal, the eighth commandment. Do not bear false witness, the ninth commandment. Do not defraud, which would be getting at somebody's wealth. And it was, scholars believe that's kind of the representation of the tenth commandment. Honor your father and your mother, the fifth commandment. He gives six commandments here. And as he lays out these commandments, he says, this is what you need to do. I love what the guy says next. He said to the teacher, All these I've kept from my youth. I can't tell you enough that this is a moral, upstanding man. Great relationship and respect for mom and dad. Not committing adultery on his wife. You know, not murdering. He is an upstanding individual. One that would be respected. And I tell you this, if you are the father of a daughter, this is the kind of man you want your daughter to bring home. Not some of those thugs that they bring home, okay? Dead weights that you say, please, I will find the door for you or a gun for you want. This is the kind of guy you want coming home. He's making his own living. He's not living off mom and dad. He is doing it. And I'm going to say this and point this out to you. I believe, and I think I can substantiate it. I believe this man believes that Jesus is God. Because he says, he addresses him, he says, good teacher. Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. So Jesus wasn't denying it, but he was just bringing it out. Hey, hey, listen up. Did you hear what that man just called me? He called me good. Why did you call me good? Because see, in the Jewish history, in the Jewish theology, there was no one good but God. Only God could be considered good. Even Christian theology in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there's none righteous, not even one. There's nobody good out there. We're all messed up. We all have baggage. We all have trash in our life. Don't we? Are we in a room where one beggar helping another beggar just get through life? We're trying to make good of life. But this guy's looking at Jesus. He's says, hey, you're good. You've got to be God. Let me review. A good, moral, upstanding, hardworking, wealthy, Jesus-believing individual is standing before Christ wanting to make sure his eternity is secure. I look at this guy and I say he's a a follower all the way. He's got his act together. He's got it all figured out. When you look at this, but you know the rest of the story or you've heard the rest of the story or you will hear the rest of the story, there's another layer to this. See, Jesus mentions six commandments, but he doesn't mention four commandments and he doesn't mention the first commandment which the first commandment says that you'll have no other god before me and there was one thing that this man had is he had a problem with other gods let's break it down these are distractions in our life that you and I will deal with on an everyday basis I'm going to mention three of them today, and all three of these you and I will deal with, and each one of them, as I mentioned one, the second one will be harder than the first one, and the third one will be harder to maintain than the second or the first one. So just get ready for it to build. The first one, the first distraction that this man was clearly dealing with was the distraction of more, fill in the blank. He was dealing with this desire for more, fill in the blank, okay, okay? Again, fame, fortune, career, position, power, influence, you fill in the blank. I literally tried to make a list of all the possible things that we could desire, and I gave up. There's so many things. I spent literally an hour writing, thinking, desiring. What is it that we desire? This guy desired certain things. If you go on to verse 21, you see the meltdown and you see what happens when Jesus responds back to this guy after he says, hey, from a kid, I've been keeping the commandments. Now he goes to verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, and I've highlighted it, loved him. I'm going to come back and talk about that in a moment. Looking at him and loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go. He gives him three commands. Go and sell all that you have and give what you just sold to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. He didn't say follow me and then. He said go get rid of these things in your life. Go get rid of the money. Whoa, is God anti-money? Is God anti-things? Have I got to become a, a, a monk and sell over everything I have and go live in the hills and, and wear sackcloth? Is that is that what he's saying? If I'm going to go to heaven when I die? Not at all. God is not anti-money. He owns the, the land on a thousand hills. He, he owns all the gold and the silver. The book of Haggai says God's not anti-money. Listen, God's anti-idolatry. And anything that stands between us and an absolute love for God, anything, career, fashion, passions, compassion, desires, anything that we would have out there, you can put in that blank that would stand between us and God, that becomes an idol. It stands in the way of the relationship. And Jesus knew that this man had a problem with stuff, with money with fortune. He tells him, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then you can follow me. See, we have a problem in our world and in our day when we allow things to come between us and God. Stuff to come between us and God. I was on the plane coming back, I think it was probably from Paris to Atlanta that I was reading this passage again and again and again. And finally, it stood out to me in an amazing way. That statement, verse 21, I made it bold there, okay? Circle it. Jesus looking at him and loved him. Looking at him. I looked that up and what that means to look at. It means to look into the soul of someone. Jesus looked in to this man's soul. But he didn't just look into him in some kind of condemning fashion, some kind of berating kind of fashion. It looked into him, and he loved him. Look at the word loved here, and the love word here means to embrace, means to hold. Jesus truly loved this man. But this man, though he loved the idea of Jesus, he loved the idea of following Jesus This man loved his things, his money, his fortune, his possessions more than he loved Jesus, and Jesus could call him out on it. And you have Jesus who loves him. Listen, listen, don't miss this. Jesus loves him. The rich young ruler loves the idea of Jesus. I can't tell you the number of times in 25 years of paying a pastor And I've had people come in my office here, this church and every other church that I've pastored, and they come in alone because their other spouse spouse will not come with them. And they come and they sit in my office. Maybe it's within the same 24-hour period that this event takes place. They sit in my office and they weep like a baby. Sometimes I embrace them and hold them and sometimes I just want to cry with them and sometimes I do cry with them. And they tell me this something, a story, something like this. It's been replayed so many times. I can replay it again and again. And they say something like this. I just found out something yesterday about my spouse that I didn't know. Or their spouse comes in and tells them, I don't love you like I used to. I found someone else. And I'm leaving. And there's absolute brokenness and weeping. And I can tell you time and time and time and time and time again, what's going to come out of their mouth next is they're going to say, Mike, please give me the secret. Please give me the idea. Please give me the, the, the cure to make that person love me again to make the one that I committed myself to because I love them. I'll forgive them. I'll get past what they've done, where they've gone, and who they've done it with. I love them even if they don't love me. Help me make them love me back. And I tell you, I wish I had a wand. I wish I could say, okay, if you go home and do this, this, and this, they'll love you. They'll leave all the other persons, all the other... I just, I have to say this honestly. I have to say, there's nothing, absolutely nothing you can do to make them love you. They got to choose to. They got to choose to. Here's a situation where this guy loves the idea of Jesus, and Jesus loves him. And he can't let go of his stuff in order to follow Jesus. We do the same thing. We commit adultery on Jesus all the time. Whenever we love anything more than we love Jesus. And this man heard this and in verse 22. How did he respond? He responded in verse 22. It says that he was disheartened. In one translation, it says he grieves. He was disheartened by the saying, and he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. He couldn't let go of them. He loved them more than he loved Jesus. He wanted to follow Jesus, but Jesus, can I bring this along? That's no more rational than me coming to the marriage altar and saying to Lori, Lori, I love you and I want to marry you, but hey, I got three girlfriends over here that are pretty hot and I want to stay with them too. It doesn't work that way. And neither does Jesus let it work that way. And so when anything stands between us and God in our devotion to Him, it's an idolatry problem, and it grieved Him. He was sad because he wanted to follow Jesus, but he couldn't. This is where the sovereignty of God and the free will of man come in. You don't realize it's the only time that Jesus literally invites someone to follow Him, and He refuses. The sovereignty of God is that God gives us the choice. He could force it upon us, but he doesn't. He gives us the choice, and if we choose to say no, he will say okay. If we choose to love something else more than we love him, he will say okay. What is it that we are going to do? This guy had money. He had money. He couldn't let go of the money. He he le- I was reading Kyle Alleman's book and, you know, not a fan. And I was, we were in the last fall and we were, we were in the process of looking for houses. We got this bug that we were looking for a new house. We had these different things that we were looking for in this new house. And we had some great real estate agents here in the church that were looking for us. And we found several good houses. And one of them in particular, we really got excited about. I got more excited than I think Lori and we were ready to, I was ready to make an offer. She wasn't. And that's why we're married is because we don't make decisions unless we make them together. And I'm like, come on, hurry up, hurry up. I'm ready to make the offer. And you're not ready to make the offer. And so all, all this going along. And then I get to Kyle Eilman's chapter and he talks about he and his wife going through a process where they want and there's not a chapter and verse for this, but this is what he said. I want to quote it from you. Make sure that the largest check they wrote, they wanted to make sure as a family that the largest check they wrote each month was to the work of God. It was to the work of God. And I can say right now, and I'm not saying this in a boastful way. I'm just saying this right now. When that happened to me, I asked the question, does the McDaniel family, is the largest check that we write to the work of God through Grace Point Church every month? And I could say, not in an arrogant kind of way, I could say, yes, we have made that commitment. We have lived below our means. We have been able to write a check either to uh, our operating budget or to the Envision campaign or to our missions money. That would equal out over the months more than we give to anything else more than we give to the bank More than we give to the mortgage more than we give to the cars more than we give to any sports more than we give to anything And we had advisors and their financial advisors in our church that worked us through this process It was we were looking at this house getting ready to make a bid on it and make a run for it And they said they said mike y'all could do this with both yours and Lori's income, you could do this house. It was going to be an upgrade for us. It going to be some acreage and some things like that. And we, were going to be, we, we could do this. We could do this. The vi- financial advisors are telling us we could do this. But then if we did this, we would be writing more to the bank than we are to the kingdom of God. know, this is just us. This is just us. We don't want that. I want our bank statement I want our home I want our bank statement I want every area of our life to say more that we love Jesus than anything else what is it that your money says about you where is it that you spend most of your money if you as a person give your life away you will never be poor You will never be poor if you give your life away. Invest it. Figure out how you can invest it. Figure out how you can put it into God's kingdom. Don't let anything stand between you and your love relationship with God. Number two, family. Now, this may seem really weird, that family would become a distraction. Aren't we a family-centered church? Aren't we a family-centered culture? Don't we need to put more prioritization on the family? Absolutely we do. But your family could stand between you and your relationship with God. Now this will make sense if you'll hang with me through this entire thing because what happens next is that Jesus continues the dis- discourse as this man in his grieving state of soul walks away. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, listen, it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven. Is it harder for a camel to get to the eye of a needle than a rich man to get to heaven? And he goes on with the discourse and then Peter in his typical fashion he interrupts Jesus. He says, what about us? We've given it all up. Look at verse 28. Peter began saying to Him, See, we have left everything to follow You. In Matthew's account of the story, he interrupts him and says in Matthew 19, 27, he says, What then will there be for us? He wanted to know. Listen, he wanted to know the R-O-I on his life given to Jesus. We've given up family. We've given up careers. We left our nets. We're following you, Jesus. What's in this? In Luke chapter 14, verse 26, a stumbling block for some people because it's going to take it to a new level in your minds and souls. So listen to this. If anyone comes to me or wants to follow me, and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. What? Hate? Hate? He uses the word hate. Hate father, hate mother, hate wife, hate children, hate brothers, hate sister. What's this hate talk by Jesus? He's doing this comparison here. He's saying, listen, your love for me, your devotion for me ought to be so great that when it pales in comparison, you shouldn't, there should be no comparison. You should love me more than you love your wife, your children, your mother, your father. And then Jesus picks it up here in, in verse 29 to 30. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there's, there's no one who has left his house, his brothers, his sisters, his mother, his father, his children, for the land's sake, and for uh, uh, or, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel. Who will not receive a hundred... Now, a hundredfold, now in this time, houses brothers and sisters and and mothers and children and lands with uh, uh, persecution and and the age to come eternal life. What is it that we get? We love God more than we love our family. Let Let me give you a life principle and hopefully this will help it make sense. I am able to love my family more when I love Jesus most. Let me give you the example of this. I grew up in a home. You grew up in a home. You live in a culture that does not thrive, that does not exude, that does not exemplify unconditional love. We do not, we do not live in that culture. It's all conditional, it's based on beauty, it's based on fame, it's based on fortune, it's based on what you do for me. If you don't do something for me, I'm not going to love you back. It's all this self-centeredness. When I entered into a relationship with Jesus, I met a God who loved me unconditionally. There's nothing I could do to make Him love me anymore. There's nothing I could do to make Him love me any less. He just loved me. Warts and all, he accepted me, he embraced me, he forgave me. All my shortcomings, all my mess up, he showed me unconditional love. And because he has loved me, I am loving him. And and that love relationship is great and growing and maturing. And now what? Guess what? Now I take that unconditional love and I love Lori. And I love my children. And now they understand what unconditional love is because I first loved Jesus. I am able to love my family more because I love Jesus the most. Do you love your family more than you love Jesus? Think about it. The third challenge for us, the third distraction for us that's a desire of us is your own life. Your own life can literally get in the way of your following Jesus. Your own life can make you a fan and keep you a fan for the rest of your life. The last verse in this passage is, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. The whole idea here is that we've got to get ourselves off the pedestal, off our little deity God stools, and we've got to put ourselves last. Ourselves last. We just read it a few verses ago. Luke chapter fourteen twenty six says, Yes, even your own life. The whole idea of our life becomes second to God or third or fourth down the line. John chapter 12 verse 25 says those who love their life in this world will lose it. And those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. There's an eternal perspective on our life. There's a, there's a greater value on our life when we realize that this flesh and blood means far less. And I, yeah, I pay so much attention. I buy so many clothes for it. I take care of it and you should. You should. There's not, he's not saying that, that. We should neglect it. It's all we have. But what are you living for with it? With the life that you have, what are you living for? Think about that chew on that another life principle jesus sees second place as first loser if jesus is not in the first position of our life he's a loser he's out probably the best example of this is the apostle paul that i can think of in in acts chapter 20 verse 24 you find him making this statement he says but my life is worth nothing to me it's worth nothing how is he measuring the value of his life? Is it his his ROI on his investments? Is it, is it his, is his net worth? Is it his education? Is it his place and position in the company? No, it's worth nothing. Unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Isn't that beautiful? My life is nothing. Unless it's used for His glory. Unless it's used for His fame. See, then when we shift the priority from being about us to being about Him, now we're talking about being a follower. But when it's about us, we don't want to follow anybody. We want to follow ourselves and we want to just be a fan of Jesus, paint our faces for Jesus, cheer for Jesus, raise our hands in worship for Jesus. But what He's really wanting is He's wanting our life. Where a life is given to him. So I just got back from my ninth trip to West Africa, as many of you all know, and uh, loved it. Absolutely the best trip ever, and I can say that. Uh, I, I, got, I got a lot of reasons to say that, and I don't have time to go through them all. But everything went as planned. That helps. Uh, flights were smooth, luggage was there, team was great, uh, uh, the village was amazing, the, the weather temperature was good, the food was good. There were so many things good about the trip, it would rank up there as my favorite all-time trip to West Africa. But I think probably the tipping point was the believers or the new believers. In a village of about 800, it's about what we're estimating the village is, population, there are eight believers, eight count. Them. 1% of the population, the rest of the village are either Muslims or animus. And when I talk about Muslims, I'm talking about strict Muslims in the sense that it's a family generational thing. And if you are to leave Islam, you are to leave the family. Literally one of the men, say goodbye, is that, had to move from being inside the city to being outside the community. And he's rebuilt his house out there. Say so is a great believer. It was just amazing to be able to sit under the trees and to be able to tell stories and to see these epiphanies, these lights come on about what it means to follow Jesus. And they understand to follow Jesus means persecution. And they're willing to go that far. It was just a beautiful time. And even in that time, we saw Sagaba and Maba. They've declared their faith publicly and were baptized. In fact, we have a photo of them being baptized on the far right. They're being baptized. I'm being baptized on the left. I chose to be baptized again as an example to them because in a little duck pond is what that is right there. And 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 I was going to be baptized again to show them that, listen, I am declaring my faith in Jesus Christ. You don't know me, but baptism is a declaration of my faith. And so I'll declare my faith. Will you declare yours? In Maba, on the left or in the center and uh on the right both declared their faith in the village it was beautiful and another step forward to that village coming to faith in christ awesome trip you come back from a trip like that how do you top it you land in, in atlanta and your flight to northwest arkansas is canceled so you wake up to the reality that you're back in america and i get to the hotel room because we have to overnight there and Jeff, I'm rooming with Jeff Wicker and he's in showering and all of a sudden he even said he heard me scream. I screamed out, yelled out, oh no! I had left my iPad on the plane. Alright? Now, again, you talk about spiritual matters and then all of a sudden you talk about an iPad. And all of a sudden I switched back into America mode now. I was like, oh no, i got to find my iPad. It's got this week's sermon on it. And... And, and I've gotta, I gotta get to that. So I like, I ditch the team. I go back to the airport. I think I passed through TSA illegally, but don't tell anybody. And so I went back to the gate. I found the gate. I said, somebody go on the plane, look for my iPad. They went on the plane, look for the iPad. It's not there. Somebody has a nice iPad. What am I gonna do? I gotta get an iPad. I rent a car, I go down to a, a Linux or whatever, Apple mall store, and I, and I buy me another iPad. So this is a new iPad, by the way, all right? I, listen, I couldn't make these stories up. I'm just stupid like that. I just do things that create good stories. There's was an expensive personal mistake that I made, about $600. Then I go back to the room. I was pumped on adrenaline. Everyone else is asleep i 'm hot and mad and everything else, and I get in bed I got to read something so I get my new iPad out. <laughs> I open it up to my utmost for highest march fourth because that 's the day it was, and I read these words it 's easier to serve God without a vision, easier to work for God without a call, because when you 're not bothered by what God requires, common sense in your guide veneered over with Christian sentiment. All of a sudden I realized, Mike, you turned sentimental toward Christ when you moved back into the States. You came about a gadget and a machine. You became about things and possessions. and You came—you became about that. You lost the call. You became about that and not about me. you It's much easier though, Mike. If you want to go the easy route, just... Just serve without a calling. Live without a vision. Don't respond to me with all of your life. And I remembered Sagaba. And I remember Maba. And I went to sleep thinking about them, not about an iPad that cost me a lot of money and a steak that cost me a lot. And then I remembered another verse, Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life, what happens? He's going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Would you bow your heads with me? Would you take a moment? And would you answer a few questions? Is your life, is it about the money, the bonus from Walmart this week, the position you hold, the things that you have? Is your life about your family? And your family's not bad. Is your life about yourself? It's all about numero uno you. Because those right there, those good things... Things are okay. Family is wonderful. Your life is valuable. You're made in the image of God. But if any of that is before your relationship with Jesus, then you're a fan. You're a fan. And to be a follower means you love and you serve and you give and you live and you don't even count your life as anything outside of living for Him. Just as Paul said, Jesus can't make you love Him any more than I can make a a spouse who's walked away from a marriage love their spouse. You choose to love Him. You choose for Him to be first. I'm going to have some prayer partners all around the room. Some will be up front. Some will be in the back. If at any point during this next song, You think, I need to clarify, I am a follower of Jesus. I am moving to follow Him with no distractions. Go to them. Let them pray with you. This is your time. Father God, be in this room, be in this place, be in this moment, and help us to understand what is distracting us, what is keeping us from being 100% Following you? Is it the things we have? The stuff, the money, the possessions, the bank account, the five oh five oh C three. What 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 is it? The house, the car? Is it even our family? All the sports events, all the all the tournaments, all the things that we got going on that distract us from you? Is it even just our own selfish desires? help us to put You first, to put ourselves last so that we might really, really, really live. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Would you sing with us?